we're here and, you know, God tried to stop us and he couldn't. Yeah. Uh, threw a little bit of weather our way and knocked out your internet. <laughs> your pa- Did your power go out too? Um, it kept flickering on and off, but like it was stable maybe like 30 minutes after we gave up. So he was satisfied. Yeah. Well, it did, you know, it wasn't necessarily God. It could have been, you know, our good friends of the show, Dave and Dan and their government guys. Yeah. Yeah. Could have been seed in the clouds, which that's a crazy thing, by the way. Have you ever read about cloud seeding? It's it's a real thing, right? Like it started out, yeah. people were like, oh, it's very suspicious, maybe. But then like actually they can do that. They can like start storms or something. I think they use silver. This I saw this on Jeopardy, so I don't know. <laughs> maybe Jeopardy's lying to me. Adam, that's pretty reputable. You know, <laughs> there, there are worse <laughs> sources than Jeopardy. For real. <laughs> um, also, my garage flooded last night. So that Whoa. was fun. Whoa, holy shit. What happened? So you know how like my garage has a big hill in front of it yeah yeah yeah. it all kind of slopes down that way yeah so there's a drain down there and like thank god for kyle because he noticed that it wasn't draining mm-hmm. and so we had to go out there in the rain and like dig out the dirt from the drain because it had gotten so clogged with leaves and dirt because it's been raining all week that it had filled up and so it didn't get like into the garage it was like right at the threshold it was yeah. super close whoa it's fucking wild yeah, it was, it was nuts and not super fun to deal with. I didn't do a lot, though, honestly. I just, I tried and failed to open the garage door. I don't know why that's so hard for me. I ran around and handed Kyle stuff. I was very useless. Yeah, I don't have like an opener, I guess. It keeps breaking. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> you might need one. In case yeah, I get in there. I have noodle arms. <laughs> so, yeah, all that to say, you know, this is going to be stitched together a bit. So if you ever hear a change in sound quality or just like, I don't know, Grady's voice takes a while to warm up. So that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it's a new day. Yeah. So bear with us. All right, here we go. Let's jump in. We're back with part two and we're jumping right into Stalin's fingers, which is just a really unpleasant turn of phrase. Jumping into Stalin's fingers. I don't want that. He's just softly caressing us in this next <laughs> no. part. No, no. <laughs> Maybe if it's hot Stalin, then yeah. If it's young Stalin, then fine. He, his fingers can, they are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Should we give any, I, I mean, you're listening to part two. So you were around for part one, right? <laughs> 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 if you weren't, you should probably go listen to it or you'll be a little confused. But we're on chapter five of Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti. All right. In this chapter, Parenti kind of talk, starts talking about um, the gulag system and kind of like popular perceptions of that versus what the historic evidence shows. Um, and in general, you know, when you are talking about socialist states, you know, states governed by communist parties, people, how they will be like, oh, this was terrible. This is a police state. It was the worst thing ever. And he's kind of like saying, well, how about how bad was it? And what were the conditions sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'd say definitely take a listen back to our Stalin episode. Like my overall feel on this, though, is that like, it's still bad, for sure. We, we can absolutely and should absolutely still criticize it. But I think Parenti does a good job of pointing out like, you know, let's take a look at who's making these claims and 
how shit is going on in our own house when it comes to, you know, prison labor and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I, and I, when he, when you say like, yeah, it definitely was bad. I think he also says that too. For sure. For you know, sure. He gets kind of a reputation as like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, talk to anybody who listens to Parenti cause like he's a tanky or whatever. But like he says in there, like, Hey, some of the shit was bad, you know? I think he does. Yeah. I think it's just so hard to find nuance in this kind of stuff that any, not even defense, but any sort of nuance is treated as a defense. Right. Yes. Uh, And I mean, come on, that happens in historical examples. It happens today. If you're like, hey, should we be sending tons and tons of money to arm Ukraine or should we? Then they're like, oh, you're a tool of Putin. And you're like, no, that guy's an asshole. Like, I don't like him either. (laughs) You know, <laughs> two or, people can be bad. <laughs> yeah. Or like, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I wonder if what they're saying about China is as bad as what, you know, the U.S., it's avowed enemy is, you know, is saying, like, is it really that bad or is it somewhere in between? And that's like, well, you defend everything they say. And it's like, maybe not. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. <laughs> well, yeah. And, you know, you don't want to be disingenuous with that and say, like, you know, because People on the right will do that, too. It's like, oh, I'm just asking questions. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah. But any sort of criticism, I think, of the main U.S. imperial line is seen as like, oh, you're a paid agent of whatever. You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> stepping out of line. But let's get into let's get into what he says here in this chapter. He starts out kind of saying how it's interesting that while we were shown a very dystopian i guess is the best way to put it like view of of communist nations and stuff how they were just complete police states and horribly repressive how they just kind of like fell with very little violence yeah i thought that was a very interesting point of like yeah look how intense and horrible these people are and it's like i mean that's a super peaceful transition to power (laughs) yeah could you imagine the united states peacefully transferring power to a different type of regime absolutely not we can't even like vote people in anymore (laughs) there would be like an honest debate about like should we push the nuclear button before china takes over (laughs) yep yep (laughs) (laughs) and so he's like well okay well how repressive were they sort of how bad was this and that's the first section talking about the victims and i mean he just like uses documents versus showing how other people are like just doing estimates and stuff and getting all the way up to a hundred million people. And it's just like, uh, how, how can you go from anywhere from, you know, five to 7 million and then be escalating to, you know, it's just like people are guessing. For sure. For sure. What do you think about kind of his claim? You know, he's like, why would the the NKVD, you know, their secret police lie about this? I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. Secret police is like to lie about things. So what did you think about that? I am fine with the view that they are under. The the trouble with it is, is that, yeah, they probably don't have completely accurate records. They, they, they're kind of at a cross, like they're being torn in two different directions. So during the purges, uh, they would have been pressured to purge more people. So the records would be like inflated if anything, but then after the purges, they would be pressured not to be purging people. So they'd be, maybe go back and change them and make them lower so or something. So it averages but, out like, yeah, probably close. Yeah. And then for your own internal records, you basically want those to be accurate. But then 
you know, what, when, when the eighties happen and they realize that their records are going to come out, like, do they have time on their way out the door to go back and say, actually it was, it was lower. Like, you know, like it assumes that they know that their internal records of their country are going to be turned over to the general public, which doesn't seem like they would ever be operating under that assumption until like it's the very end. And they're worried about like their country collapsing. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Like, it makes sense logically that if they are an intelligence agency, like they would want to have the right information somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless it's, it's completely off the books or something, which I think he does a good job of explaining that that's not really what the gulag was. Like it wasn't a, a black site. It wasn't like a secret torture camp or something or an extermination camp. It was really just like, I mean, it was bad because it was their prison system, which prisons suck, but it was really basically just their prison system. Yeah, yeah. That's a super common comparison is is saying, well, you know, Stalin is as bad as Hitler and the gulags are used as an example of that. And it's like, all right, man, if you're that against gulags, are you also yelling about the prison system? Like, show up, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you know, there, there are, you know, comrades out there who would say, yes, you know, like I am. And that's great. You know, and this is, you know, where we're in solidarity while being in somewhat of a disagreement about, you know, ends and means if you are someone who's like, well, you have to have a prison system because of counter-revolutionaries, whatever. You know, okay, we can figure that yeah, stuff out. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking <laughs> about the bad faith people. Yeah, but yeah, the, the liberals and the and the right-wingers who will do that, that's, you know, where they're like, oh, well, no, our, we, we have prisons and sure, we can try to improve conditions, but ours are different, you know, but they have they have camps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of that is just the connotation of language, just having, you know, a scary sounding word to Western mm-hmm. ears, you know, if they had just been like, yeah, they have prisons, well, this wouldn't be a conversation. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, because over in countries that we don't like, they have, you know, work camps. And I mean, you think our prisoners aren't doing work for mm-hmm. basically free? There's an exception in our constitution for slave labor, which is people convicted of crimes in the the 13th amendment absolutely and they get contracted out like crazy but they're not in camps (laughs) (laughs) not the same thing apparently yeah um one of the things he talks about is the executions of people during uh the during the time uh, basically during stalin's time i mean stalin's fingers right that's who we're talking about (laughs) the 33 year span had nearly 800,000 executions 799 1455 that's a yeah that's a lot of people he said basically that these researchers who were looking at the records like didn't get any like breakdown or didn't you know it wasn't like who all gets killed but like he was kind of talking about it like these have a lot of people who were just executed for you know like murder or something which boo the death penalty you know but that's just that's that's what that is um you also had people who had been like collaborating with, with various enemies, right? So in the initial days, the foreign invasion during the civil war or the white guards or the Nazis later, uh, some of them were German SS prisoners. And again, you can be like, well, you shouldn't execute people in general, but you ha- you also have to, I guess, keep in mind, like it wasn't just, damn, this guy laughed at a joke about Stalin so he actually, you know, like it's not yeah. 799,000 people who are just regular like, people. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a great defense really, but 
it's context, maybe. I think, yeah, I think it, it is seen as like when you think about the comparison to the to concentration camps, it's seen as just like regular families getting swept up in this kind of thing and just, you know, whole villages or whatever. And like, this is more like a war count, which is still bad and I'm against it, but it is different. Yeah. And that's a good point to bring up too, is it's not like a category of people thing. That like too. The Holocaust. Not to say there weren't, it just wasn't like straight up executions, you know, like they did mass deportations of ethnic groups, which was not good. Mm-hmm. That was one of our it's one of the strikes. strikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's not what this is talking about. Where this is talking about they line you up and shoot you, execute you. And they weren't doing that for, you know, just, hey, this guy is, you know, this particular ethnic group, blam. Uh, the next section was interesting, I thought, because he was talking about like, where it's called where did the gulag go and kind of like why didn't we see more evidence of it yeah there would have been if everyone's in a gulag or not everyone but you know huge numbers of people are in gulags then after the fall of the soviet union there should have been like a giant release of people all these horrifying stories and you know maybe refugees and that didn't really materialize right yeah and this you know this government that took power there he's going to get into it is it was super anti-communist and everything they would have taken the chance to say hey here are all the horror stories here's the people we liberated blah 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 right that's a great point (laughs) they didn't do that they just more or less ran the prison system you know maybe they said oh these people were jailed for being anti you know anti-communist so they're out but like they just kept running it like the russian prison system is like the inheritor of the old Soviet one. So it's not like, I don't know that that's the biggest, I guess, point of evidence of like, it was, it was just a prison system, which, you know, like it or hate it. That's, it was, it was kind of normal. And then he talks a little bit about kind of the putting communists on trial. You know, this, you can think of it as the, you know, earlier we had denazification. This is their decommunistication, (laughs) (laughs) but it was kind of like weak, uh, all they could find were like not very sexy cases. There was a guy, someone ordered the Czech police to use tear gas and water cannons against demonstrators. That happens every day. Yeah, we need to put some like American cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a big deal. They could have borrowed some of our cops. They want some real nasty guys. Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, 12 elderly Stalin era political policemen in 1996 in Poland were sent to prison for beating and mistreating prisoners uh, like 50 years ago. So these are, I mean, they're bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of tear gas and beatings. But like, again, considering the levels of police violence prevalence in the States and in a lot of Western countries, like this is pretty normal. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the telling thing is, again, there's a regime change. So you look at our system and you say, well, you know, your system has, you know, the United States has a lot of police violence and everything, and it doesn't get put on trial because the system is set up to protect them. But in their case, the system was set up to like show how bad they were because it's an, you know, it's a new set of leaders who have a, you know, a real propaganda interest in saying, look at the bad predecessors. I'm new and good. You know, exactly. If there had been anything really, really nasty, we would have all heard about it. Yeah. I mean, again, that's not to say, like, 
there weren't bad things because obviously, uh, like we keep saying, you know, just trying to reemphasize, I guess, <laughs> but like it's a, you know, if you have apparatus of police, you know, and, and prisons and all this going on, you know, that's, that's going to cause some suffering, but it doesn't seem like it was, well, it certainly wasn't on like the scale of the Nazis or anything like that. Yeah, and uh, there's even like a story about someone releasing a bunch of prisoners because they're like just kind of assuming they were all there for political reasons. Uh, this was in Czechoslovakia in 1989, and <laughs> they were criminals, and so they went and did crime. <laughs> right they they had kind of a career, a criminal history that they res- resumed upon leaving instead of like, oh, I'm re- a repressed journalist or something. Exactly. I mean, which is just kind of funny to me. <laughs> like, good job, prisoners. Way to go. Showing them your skills. <laughs> <laughs> In this chapter, he also, I think, makes a sort of justification um, where he's kind of saying that, hey, you know, these states, maybe they did some bad things or things you disagree with or what have you, but they accomplished a lot and they started out the reason they accomplished so much is because they started out at like ground zero you know they started out below that even like in terrible situations yeah i think this is what we talked about last week is you know when we talk about the soviet union and a lot of other nations that went through this kind of change they were doing it because of their horrible circumstances and also in spite of like they you know that whole one arm tied behind their back kind of thing of like this is a desperate situation you know we're fucking serfs or in cuba's case we've been brutally colonized you know there's reasons why they're rising up and the circumstances make things much more intense all around yeah and he kind of offers a critique of people who say well you know you do all this and you're, you know, you're feeding the children and all this stuff. Fine. But like you're being, you're taking away democratic freedoms and democratic rights and stuff like that. Leaving aside the whole, like you do have like democracy within the party and stuff. You you're not, you know, but you don't have like multi-party, you don't have liberal democracy, this sort of thing. And his point was like, they didn't have that before. <laughs> right. Yeah. What yeah, democratic like, rights did the fucking czar give them? Right. What if, <laughs> what has been taken away? You know, like, I vote bizarre every year. It's just <laughs> me sending him a sticker. It says like, you did it. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Good job, Czar. Stay in power for life. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like he, he's, he's saying nothing has been taken away and how much, how much has been given, you know, yes. um, how, how much did not given, but how much did, were the people able to do for themselves uh, in overthrowing their imperialist masters in overthrowing the ruling class and governing for themselves, regardless of, you know, oh, you couldn't, you know, do counter-revolutionary stuff or you would be, you know, thrown in jail or, or what have you. Yeah, sure. But look at what all is happening for you. That's good. Yeah. Let's, let's play bad Marxist here though. How would this play out in a country that does have a liberal democracy? Like this is... <laughs> Stupid idea time. Let's give the people control of something really dumb. Like, oh, but you get to vote on your sports team mascot. <laughs> <laughs> so you keep like Congress and stuff, but it's just for. It's just for things. stupid shit. It's just a popularity contest. Mm-hmm. I mean, some would say it's kind of for that now already. It like already the is. Stuff you can actually influence is, <laughs> is actually just the stupid shit. The rest of it is 
stuff they already decided to do. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> that, I guess my actual point besides the joke was, you know, this argument is they didn't have those rights before, you know, nothing is getting taken away in a country where you, on the surface level, ostensibly had those rights. And there's a lot of caveats around that, because as we all know, you know, voting is pretty fucked up here. Mm -hmm. It's, it would be a harder game to play in the role of public perception. You'd have to make sure that what you're giving people is really fucking obvious and like noticeably better, which, you know, at this point, it's probably not as hard to do because it's so bad. Um, so yeah, I'm holding out. Maybe climate collapse will get us there. You know, we'll get so desperate. We're like, fuck these guys. And you know, maybe, I mean, <laughs> I think that goes back to our earlier point, right? Is you make conditions bad enough to where people have to rise up. But then, I mean, they're starting in really bad conditions. That's so. what I'm thinking. Good luck, grandchildren. When you're listening to this on a desiccated MacBook. <laughs> Hi, your Grammy loves you. <laughs> Good luck out there. Don't get radiation poisoning. <laughs> okay. Chapter six. This is about like the fall of the Soviet Union and kind of the spread of free market shit everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the fall of all of the socialist governments in Eastern Europe and the interesting notions of democracy, shall we say, that, uh, that the new regimes had. Yeah, one of my favorite points from this that I highlighted in my copy was, oh, by the way, I marked a fuck up out of your book, so. It is okay. <laughs> Enjoy that when you get this back. <laughs> one of the my favorite lines here was, apparently the free market said by, quote, reformers to be the very foundation of political democracy could not be introduced through democratic means. <laughs> so like, yeah, these people who are all yelling about democracy and fair elections and all that kind of shit in order to get their regimes in place, do some backhanded shady shit, some undemocratic shit to get their guys in power. Yeah, they start getting rid of the communists as soon as they're in. They're just like, get out of here. You're not allowed in the political sector at all. Suspending parliaments, talking about the dangers of democracy, suppressing newspapers, all these things. You know, when the U.S. all the while is like, oh, hey, they're like nice. Uh, on page 88, he talks about someone that he's going to kind of keep talking about throughout, I guess, or he has repeated mentions of this guy, uh, the late, not so great <laughs> Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, my favorite tweet that I read about his passing was how many of you all just realized he was still alive only to find out that he died. <laughs> Cause that was me. Yeah, that was, that was Abby too. I told her about it. She was like, Oh, he was still alive. Exactly. Oh, but, um, he was very anti-democratic. Uh, everyone, you know, He's seen as, oh, the he's trying to be the liberalizer, the reformer, blah, blah, blah. He loves Pizza Hut. Loves Pizza Hut. Loves hanging out with Reagan. <laughs> Turns out he doesn't love democracy quite so much. He, uh, What did he do? Congress uh, and him were fighting, and he kept cutting out microphones during a debate and threatened <laughs> to abolish Congress by emergency decree and then forced a vote three different times until he got to abolish it. Wow, that sounds like someone who knows how democracy works. For sure. <laughs> I will strong on Congress into abolishing itself. That, that, that's, how, that's how you do it. <laughs> sounds great. I mean, it does sound great a little bit. Uh, current Congress. <laughs> <laughs> but not the Soviet Congress. 
Yeah. Uh, he also talked about Yeltsin, you know, everyone mm-hmm. loves you or someone loves someone you. Someone still does. Yeah, someone still <laughs> loves you, Boris Yeltsin, but not these two commies. <laughs> uh, at least I, I think, I don't, at least. I don't know anything about him, so I can't make that call yet. I what? just like the band. What about what you read about here? Oh, yeah, he did like a coup thing or something. Yeah, he did. Well, he was basically, he was the uh, president of Russia. And when he gets in, he's he's kind of in a power conflict with like the old traditional hardliners, uh, like the older communists that want to go back to that. He is essentially able to kind of solidify power when the hardliners launch a coup in August 1991. But it's like a, a real shitty coup. Like it basically d- just flops immediately. Yeah, this coup is an op, right? It Okay. You, you can't find information that says it's an op, I guess, because, you know, I mean, it's good op, <laughs> but good op. <laughs> uh, I mean, the way it reads on this page seems like that, but I haven't found any sources outside of really, you know, pretty conspiratorial or like, uh, like Russian generals saying that it, you know, definitely it was an op. So it could have just been doing really badly, so bad that people think that maybe you were an op, but it looks like one. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, you know, that allowed Yeltsin to get more power. But like as he, you know, this whole process, he, he's disbanding parliament and all its elected representatives. He's abolishing the courts, uh, jailing people without charges, banning labor unions from politics, suppressing newspapers. I think it said in there that he was targeting like Pravda in particular you know, going after their like property and shit because they were the communist newspaper. Yeah. He even disbanded like local governments, which I'm like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was just like, I'm in charge of this shit. He monopolized broadcast media. He outlawed a bunch of parties and scrapped the constitution and like put in one that like gave him all the power basically. Yeah. I mean, in marked contrast to other constitutions in the Soviet era that were like, popularly voted on and modified and ratified and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When we were doing the GDR episode, how they, you know, did kind of popular referendums for amendments and things. And, and 90% of those got put into the, into consideration and stuff. Like apparently that's not democracy, but this motherfucker is. Yeah. The one that says, Hey, the president gets to do it all. That's, that's <laughs> a democratic constitution. <laughs> oh, so yeah, no, I do not still love, Boris Yeltsin. Yeah, uh, he seems pretty bad. He, they even talk about him assassinating political opponents. Oh, the journalist? Yeah, yeah. There was a journalist. There were like independent uh, and uh, and communist dep- deputies who he had assassinated too. Oh, he uh, pocketed some money from our good friends. And by good friends, I mean good enemies, the IMF and the World Bank. Yeah. I, I mean, he just kind of mentions this, that he benefits from multi-million dollar donations from and a 10 billion dollar aid package and i mean i don't know if that just meant like oh people liked it because they got money and he claimed credit or if he like really was stealing it or something like (laughs) he didn't really say yeah i don't know i don't know i mean i don't trust this fucker so yeah i thought it was interesting uh page 91 he's in relation to that election one of the things he went around saying was like if the 
communists win, you know, there's going to be civil war. I think at one point they said that he was behind in the polls and he was like planning to cancel the election because he was losing. (laughs) A normal democratic thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And this is, again, the guy who the West was holding up as like the champion of of free market uh, reforms and, and liberalization and democracy and all that. Yeah, I mean, in conservative or Western parlance, free market equals democracy, when in fact it is just like not, they're not related at all. Yeah, again, we, you know, we said earlier, like, they're talking about the dangers of democracy. They're saying like, oh, to do these reforms, we can't do the democracy part. (laughs) It's like, they're actually separate things. (laughs) Uh, What did you think about the part where he said, hey, what if a popularly elected communist president in Russia had done this, you know, they were just calling themselves communist, but they were doing all these things. And then he's like, well, I say they would probably let him do it. And he said, that's kind of what they're doing in China. Oh, you mean they're doing all these things like free market shit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is see China. Like we don't have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. The U S you know, increasingly in our time is, you know, being more antagonistic and and saying kind of like, oh, we don't like China now. They're bad. And but like back when he's writing this, they were super cozy with China. It's becomes a branding question, I guess. Like if you're just calling yourself communist, you know, but not actually doing communism. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've had discussions on the show how like China is more complicated than that. You can't just completely dismiss it. But like, I mean, it it happens to almost all the socialist states we look at that, like, you have to end up doing a little bit of market capitalism because we're still in that game, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, kind of the defense, there's obviously a defense, like you said, of, oh, maybe they have to do it or or whatever to to develop themselves to that point. Uh, I think he also calls out Vietnam as as one example of this, too. And, And I guess for him, he's just saying, like, hey, that's not real, like, that's not, well, what would he say? That's not actual socialism, or that's not, uh, or they're doing a whole lot of capitalism in their socialism, is what he's saying. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, it's not like we're totally neutral on China and Vietnam. Like, we're not, like, best friends, you know? Yeah, and I and I think he does kind of, at some point, say, like, you know, at least they do have, like, a communist party in charge, so... They're taking these steps now, but being at the helm of that, at least they have the chance to make sure that it's not like a full on, hey, let's bring back capitalism sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I think it goes back to what he was saying a few chapters earlier, where it's about like kind of intent and it's about like having communist values at the core of your society of like, yeah, we're going to take care of people. I mean, even like China for all its problems, like, we saw how they handled the virus way better than a lot of countries. Like they are together in that sense, you know, like they can like build a new city, like nobody's fucking business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they can do some things. I'm not saying they're good at everything, but like they've got a handle on a few things. Mm-hmm. I liked his calling out of a few U S financed agencies that people don't think about, uh, the national endowment for democracy, which is like a self-admitted, they're like, hey, we, we work with the CIA. Like, I know we're called <laughs> National Endowment for Democracy, but they're kind of upfront with it, at least. Not the same thing. <laughs> uh, the AFL-CIO's Free Trade Union Institute, uh, which, I mean, kind of sounds nice. That's like a union, you know? And uh, It's got free trade in it, though. 
Uh, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, AFL-CIO makes me think of like, it's free and then trade union institute. Like oh. we are the, you know, freedom, not like free trade together, but like the trade union part together. Mm, okay. Because okay, they're a trade you. union, you know? Yeah, yeah. But good, good spot there. I think that that's more aligned with, uh, <laughs> with their <laughs> with what values. what they're actually doing. I didn't know that was a group that was linked with the CIA. And this Free Congress Foundation also sounds nice. Okay. That free good. Congress. I mean, as long as you're not thinking the U.S. Congress. But, uh, <laughs> but it's anti-communist. It's conservative and religious. Mm, not good. <laughs> no, really not great. I have a question about the footnote on this page. Um, I mean, this is less of a question, more of a request. I would love to do an episode on this situation in Ethiopia in 1995. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I, I haven't, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, so this is Mengitsu Hail Mariam. Very sorry for pronunciation. I didn't Google this ahead of time. Now, apparently there was a socialist government in Ethiopia for a hot minute. So like, we should probably find out about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We haven't done an African episode in a while. Another note about Africa was about South Yemen and Ethiopia. And they're talking about like the military actions that took place when they like were being just obliterated as communist nations. Mm -hmm. And my note is like, why don't we ever hear this? Like this is the 90s. Why don't we ever hear about that context when we talk about like suffering in Africa, particularly Ethiopia was often used in the 90s as like an example of a suffering African nation and, like, obviously, there's, like, some white savior shit going into that. But, like, why don't we get that context? Like, okay, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, there's there's no never an explanation. Because the explanation would be, this is, like, the ravaged frontier of capitalism. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, because we did it. We yeah, did the this suffering. Is just imperialism. We caused it. <laughs> so we don't, yeah, we don't want to look at it as to its causes. We just say, well, Ugh. that's sad. That's bad, you know. Gross, gross, gross. Yep. Okay, what else? Oh, yeah, the elections in Estonia, uh, 42% of the population was prohibited from voting because of their Russian, Ukrainian, or Belarusian antecedents. So, like, because of their background, like, ethnically? Yeah. What the Just, fuck? Sorry, you can't. <laughs> Just, that's, that's what I call a free election. Yeah, glad we brought democracy to them. And again, that's the theme of this chapter, I think, is democracy. It's a tool Sometimes it works for capitalists, and so they're like, oh, we're all about democracy, you know, especially if they're criticizing socialist states. They're like, oh, they don't have democracy, so they're bad. We got to throw overthrow them. But as soon as it gets inconvenient, they will just, like, get rid of it. <laughs> Goes on to talk about some elections where communists, like, just, they won the elections, and all of a sudden there are these, like, CIA-backed protests to force them to resign. We learned about some of these kinds of things in, in open veins, too. Like, it's just weird how that always happens. And then so for some reason, out of the ashes of that come, like, anti-Semitic groups and neo-Nazi mm -hmm. groups. And it's just, hmm, it's like those are hand in hand or something. Yeah, super weird. Uh, quick note, I love the magazine title that is cited, uh, Covert Action Quarterly. How do I get on that subscription list? Uh, you have to be in the know. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go ask Dave and Dan. Yeah. They're, that's what they're reading when they're out there. <laughs> it's kicked back with covert action quarterly. <laughs> uh, I, I like that he put a section in here just to talk shit about Vaclav Havel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's this guy again? So he's this like playwright from Czechoslovakia. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he became like their first post-communist president or whatever. And he just makes fun of this dude for being a weirdo. He was talking about like how he wants to govern. He did apparently did like a weird op-ed where he was like, oh, yeah, you've got like transcendental responsibility and all this weird shit. Kind of (laughs) woo-woo. But then also was like, oh, weapons sales, that's not good, but actually did it. Like was just doing (sighs) weapon sales. Of course. Suspended parliament, even though he's like, you know, I'm the nice academic guy. I'm very, you know, intelligent and and gentle and civil, but no parliament. No, thanks. I'm just going to rule by edict to do free market (laughs) reforms. Oh, yeah. And this was the same guy who, like, released all those prisoners we talked about earlier, too. Like, yeah, (laughs) this guy's just kind of inept. Yeah, he sounds like Mr. Bean or something for them. He sounds like Trump if he was coming at it from the left or something. Yeah, just like bumbling. Uh, like a woo-woo Trump. Hmm, okay. Like a, what's that lady, Marianne? See, I think she would be more competent than that. But yeah, Marianne Williamson. The, those vibes, not like necessarily her competency, but yeah, yeah the those vibes kind of woo-woo sure. vibes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else did he do? Criminalized advocating communism. So he, he just outlawed us, you know. Yeah, he criminalized class hatred. <laughs> Which like, how do you even do that? <laughs> you, you have to like rich people. <laughs> Every time you see a rich person, you have to bow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have to be happy about that. Do it with a smile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he liquidated former communists and state properties at super cheap prices and just basically gave them away to business, similar to what we yeah. talked about in the GDR episode. That happened across, you know, all the former socialist states just get like garage sailed basically by the new government. I hated the part where he was talking about how they gave all this land back. Oh, all the public land? Yeah, all the, well, the land that had been taken from the aristocracy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then he took a bunch of it, too, because of course he did. (laughs) Yeah, his family had lost. (laughs) And and this is just all like, you know, reverse of Mao's like, you know, go after the landlords thing is just like, uh, give all the, create new landlords. (laughs) Yeah, this is reverse land reform, which means it's my least favorite thing. Yeah, it sucks. Ugh. Okay, next section. Yeah, this section he talks about, I I like this term, colonizing the East, and also recolonization, which is, I think, a really useful way to view, like, how these former Eastern Bloc states were treated. It's very much like open veins. They get into these really nasty trade agreements where they are not benefiting at all. Yeah, and the recolonization thing is interesting because before, you know, they become socialist states. So before World War II, uh, they were oftentimes in that World War I interwar and World War II period, like parts of big empires. But like they were, they were like the kind of colonial part of it. Like they were not the center of the, the satellite states or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the satellite states. That's a good. So it is kind of like recolonizing in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Like they're being set up in these extractive situations uh, exploiting oil and natural gas and minerals. Uh, the IMF, once again, my, my note here just says, fuck the IMF. So I know I need to reread this paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1996, they gave a $10.2 billion loan to Russia. Their terms, you know, no big deal. Just privatize your agriculture and other state-owned assets. And oh, also get rid of any human service and fuel subsidies. Just, you don't need those, right? That's 
obviously useless. I mean, get <laughs> throw that right out. You have ten billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a mess all over the place. He talks about there. He talks about Macedonia, basically everywhere. And he he does a lot on the GDR as well. Or now, I guess at that point, Eastern Germany after reunification, how the privatization of that was uh, really just this, you know, similar to what we were talking about with Vaclav Havel. It's just a giveaway. I mean, it's just like, here you go. Here's all the shit. It's uh, completely one-sided. Well, what's interesting to me is how, like, it doesn't work. Like, you hear a lot, like, I remember, I mean, I was not as well informed back then, but like when Greece had those austerity measures. Mm -hmm. That's what this reminded me of, of, of all these kind of, you know, these are austerity sorts of rules that come with these loans. And you'd think you're like, okay, well, maybe logically you're like, I guess it's so they can get back on track, you know, get their budget together. No, like it doesn't work. They're losing production. Let's see. Production of trucks went from 150K to 13K a year in Moscow in like one plant with 40% of the workforce laid off. How is that success? 40% lost in farm output in Hungary? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's obviously not what we want. Right. Yeah. He said uh, Bulgaria was in that too, that... um they used to be like the breadbasket of Eastern Europe, but then yes. they have these big, huge shortages, uh, inflation, because uh, they're they're trying to pay back this this debt that they've been saddled with, and so they have to do austerity. Yeah, we you're right to bring up the Greek example. That was you know back in 2010, 2012, something like that. These sorts of things inflict a lot of pain. They make sure that the bankers are going to get their interest payments, but they don't serve the people because the system's not set up to serve people. It's set up to extract. And that's with anything in our system. You got to look at it in this kind of, you got to remove the glasses, basically. And he'll talk about this later on when he gets into a discussion of Marxism, but it's what is the real explanation here? And it's the serving the ruling class. Yeah. And if you want like a micro example, like think about fucking food prices and gas prices, like that isn't so, that that, that is to line somebody's pockets. That's not because like, you know, they're they're trying to be responsible or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they'll say, oh, and costs and oh, and this. It's it's also hard. But like they're raking in record profits. Yeah, yeah. Costs are up. But also for some reason, profits are up. Explain that to me. When, yeah. Anytime a society has to go through austerity or has to go through inflation or whatever, quote unquote, has to. And there has to be <laughs> belt tightening and all this. Who's tightening their belts? You know, it's never these motherfuckers saying, well, I got to sell my eighth yacht. <laughs> I got to, you know, rent out spare rooms in my mansion. It's never that. Nope. <laughs> Chapter seven, the free market paradise goes east too. Part two. <laughs> he says, I'm actually not done, but my page counts are off. I get it, man. I'm writing a book right now and I always have to, I have a little doc of like how long my chapters are. <laughs> oh, is that so? Is that a thing? They tell you like, hey, you're, you know, this chapter's too long. This chapter's too short. I've never gotten that pushback, but I try to keep it between 10 to 20 pages a chapter. It's mostly for pacing because for me, at least I do like full page chapter breaks. And so like it lets your eye rest a little bit, but you don't want those like right next to each other or like to go a really long time without it. Okay. I mean, that's just, I don't fucking know what I'm doing is also the secret. So who knows? <laughs> uh, that's that's <laughs> my book. I, I, I figured there was some sort of expert way to do it, but I guess nope, it none is of it sort is. of art. So <laughs> it's the worst. I hate it. <laughs> All right. Um, so here is more of like the crimes of capitalism section where he's... I hate that too. 
yeah, he's like, <laughs> hey, here's here's what happens when all this goes down. Not just the initial shock, but what does society look like after that? Uh, what does the free market um, bring to people? How does it improve people's lives? And the answer is it does not. No, yeah. I'd, I'd love to get some updated numbers in some of this section. In Russia, the living standard of the average family had fallen by almost half since the market reforms took hold. That's in 1996. These similar things happening in Hungary and Vietnam. The suicide rate climbed by 50% in Russia and Hungary. You know, underpaying doctors and nurses. You have a rise in drug addiction. You have uh, way worse conditions in hospitals and in terms of like rates of diseases. It's just... It's a marked drop in quality of life across the board. Yeah, yeah. More crime, less health care, worse nutrition, more infant mortality, higher death rates, more homelessness, all this. At the beginning, his first section there called for vipers and bloodsuckers. Like, the juxtaposition of all this suffering for the many is that, on the other hand, you had... The, this small group of people that was making just incredible amounts of money now. He had this quote from Bruce Gelb, the head of the United States Information Agency, who told this reporter, like, hey, you know, basically, uh, these guys need middlemen. He was like, the vipers, the bloodsuckers, the middlemen, that's what needs to be re- rehabilitated in the Soviet Union. That's what makes our kind of country click. So what? You're saying bloodsuckers are a good thing? Yeah, for this guy. He, they, and, and I mean, that's that's why. I mean, that's why you have right next to each other all these, you know, horrible conditions in society, all this degradation, uh, everything going to shit, while these other people are piling up huge hordes of wealth. What is the United States Information Agency? It sounds like a knockoff CIA. It was a U.S. agency devoted to, quote, public diplomacy from 1953 (laughs) to 1999. It was PR for the U.S. Its full-time professional staff of more than 10,000 spread out among some 150 (laughs) countries, burnished America's (laughs) image, and trashed the Soviet Union 2,500 hours a week with a Tower of Babel, but like pronounced Bab, or like spelled babbling, like babbling, Mm, comprised of more than 70 languages to the tune of over $2 billion per year. So they're professional shit talkers. Yeah. Which I guess that's good work if you can get it. They were podcasters <laughs> for the U.S. government. <laughs> that's very true. Uh, all right. <sighs> back to shit talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to, to our core competency. Yes. So things, I mean, things looked really bad. I think that, so you want updated numbers. I think numbers did get better. Like this was the initial shock. People figured out how to how to survive it didn't keep going down but i mean i think it got way better and stayed better for those very wealthy and then everyone else like leveled off you know it got really worse and then like they got a little better but they were way further down the rungs yeah than they had been in previous like under socialism mm-hmm. yeah um uh, Mon- mongolia too that's one we didn't mention homeless kids and shit yeah, living in the sewers there, which communism had really built up Mongolia into like a modern state. I mean, it hadn't had uh, an education system, uh, public works like that sewer system and, and Ulaanbaatar, like it, 
it was a big, huge state run project. We're talking five year plans, like full on industrialization sort of thing that like modernize them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Completely change the game. And then to have that pulled out from under you so suddenly that's, that's nuts. I hated the sexism part here where the Polish woman said to get a job now in the capitalist system, you had to be, you must be young, childless and have a big bosom. I mean, I guess I got to go to work in Poland. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That does suck, though. Uh, I mean, yeah, it sounds like it sucks all around. Uh, People are working harder and for less money. There's sweatshop conditions. You go without pay for months. Um, The unions get broken up. There's less benefits overall. And overall, I guess there's growing inequality as a result of all this private investment coming in. Yeah, yeah. Um, This stat was interesting. In 1992, Russia saw its consumer spending drop by 38%. For comparison, during the Great Depression, the US fell 21% over four years. So like, that's so dramatic. Yeah, that's a crazy figure. He also called out China here about the child labor issue. He was saying that market reforms had brought a return of child labor in certain areas i guess it's like damn that sucks it super sucks (laughs) we're generally against that oh but you know you know who is doing well in this security forces and private armies for some reason when you get more capitalism you get more of those weird usually i find that people who are trying to rob me in the streets are generally (laughs) more effective when they're armed That is how you do it. (laughs) And people who hold people in slavery, they're generally, you know, have fewer people escaping if they're like, they're well armed and policing them and everything. So exactly. Maybe it's like if you're oppressing people, you have to have like a gun to their head. (laughs) Let's talk corruption. (laughs) This part was just like, uh, you remember they used to have something on the radio that was like dumb criminal of the day or something. Yeah. Yeah. What was that called? And I remember the theme song from it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Uh, This, I don't know. For some reason, that read like this to me just because it should be embarrassing to these people, like, how brazen they were. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure they're not actually embarrassed about it. I'm sure they didn't get in trouble for it, so. No, yeah. (laughs) And and this section is really in contrast with, you know, how communist countries are, are characterized as corrupt. Like, let's take a look at what happened after communism. Yeah, like uh, the April 1992 example I thought was hilarious and sad that the chairman of Russia's central bank admitted that at least $20 billion had been illegally taken out of the country and deposited in Western banks. Like That's just so much money. <laughs> $20 billion, I don't know where that is. It's gone. Oh, my God. Moscow City Council member admitted to hundreds of billions of dollars oh, yeah. in corruption or estimated. So, you know, we don't actually know. Could be more, could be less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, the real estate scam, basically, that they were doing of like kickbacks and like selling real estate for really cheaply and then reselling them. Like you would sell it to your friend real cheaply, then they would resell it at market price and make a ton of money and give you some of it. And that was that was the scheme. I mean, like like anyone could come up with that. That's like a regular ass (laughs) scheme that just a stupid person would come up with. And that's what they were doing openly basically and getting away with yeah yeah oh and organized crime skyrocketing like the russian mob basically coming into existence 
Yeah, these guys ran rampant. Like, just started doing contract murders, just started, you know, taking over the place. Again, I love the note about the fact that there were fewer police people under communism. You know, you think of communism as totalitarianism. Everyone's after you. It's a fucking security state. Nope. Guess guess which one is. <laughs> Again, it's funny how it seems like you need more force to force people to turn over to you all their money and <laughs> all of their the time in their life. You know, years of their life given away to making you rich. You have to have guns for that. But yep. if the people are working for themselves and for their society, not so much. Uh, the cultural decay section was also depressing. Yeah. One stat that I thought was interesting was that during you know the communist era, three of every five books in the world were produced in the Soviet Union because of rising prices of books and paper and everything. Like That is just so not the case anymore. Yeah, and... It's in stark contrast to the popular conception of, oh, these guys had nothing. They had no books to read. The government approved everything. It's like, no, they, you know, they had a lot of books and, and stuff. And then the capitalists came in and banned them. And like diverse books, too. They're talking about they had books from Latin America and like other continents. And like now they mostly get like shitty mass market stuff from the West. Like the West has dominated their markets. They get a bunch of airport books, which I mean, you know, enjoy them. That's <laughs> I fine, do love but... an airport book. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> They buried 50,000 tons of books in a dump uh, for, like, Marxist associations, I guess. That is a lot of books. That's so many. Tons. Yeah, that's not like 50 or 50,000 books. 50,000 books. 50,000 tons of books. That's crazy. (laughs) Education. Let's just wall that off. Only rich people need to get that. Mm -hmm. Also, the media gets privatized and made into, you know, corporate media, pro-capitalist media and everything pumping out propaganda. And then the next section, talking about some of the more vulnerable groups, women and children, especially in this time, huge increase in gender inequality. We mentioned this before too. 90% of women had jobs in a full employment economy, and now they're only two-thirds of the unemployed. No, they are two-thirds of the unemployed, not only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like 30, 90% to 33%. Yeah, yeah. And in low-pay positions versus in like well in, in sort of parody of position like they had before, now it's like, yeah, you you have a job, but it's a shitty one. Yeah, you lost all your like maternity leave and childcare services. Like it's just making it impossible. Not to mention just even the outright political representation in Congress and everything too, or their legislatures that used to be like guaranteed, like you would have a certain number of representatives in in your congresses and stuff. And and that was done away with too. Sharp increase in women being murdered. Again, like these are the deaths of capitalism. These are the deaths we don't count when we talk about deaths under communism versus death under capitalism. Like we have to count these too. Mm -hmm. School lunches too. That was provided for summer camps, youth programs and everything. He says, basically those get eliminated. Youth crime goes up. Social problems all around. For sure. And of course, people kind of had regrets about that once once they saw what actually happened. This last little part of the chapter, he talks about people basically not realizing that they were going to end up with all this. Yeah, yeah. The the quote from this woman he talked to in a market, uh, or that someone else talked to in a market, excuse me. Let's see. She was 58 years old and had worked 40 years in a potato factory and could now not afford most of the foods in the market. Uh, and her quote is, 
It's not life. It's just existence. I like the next quote, too, where the chief of a hospital department in Moscow said, life was different two years ago. I was a human being. Now he has to chauffeur people around for extra income. When asked, what about the new freedoms? He said, freedom for what? Freedom to buy a pornographic magazine? (laughs) I mean, exactly. Exactly. They give us the freedom to buy little hits of dopamine and that's it. Yeah, yeah. He's like, what is the real thing? Like, I am like, he basically said, I feel less human now. Yeah, that's horrifying. Which that's what it, and we're walking around in it. I mean, obviously bribed by like the, the creature comforts, the, the, the super, you know, the stuff made possible by super exploitation elsewhere. So we don't have it that bad. We're not in a sweatshop, but like we do have those dehumanizing elements still. For sure. For sure. I think all of us have felt that way too, of just like, you know, that feeling you get when it's the weekend and you're like, fuck, I have so much just basic life shit to take care of. Like, I'm not going to get to chill at all. So that I can go back and do it again. Yeah, yeah. It just feels endless. Yeah, for real. Okay, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the popular appeal or unappeal of this new system. Okay. In 1993, Russia showed only 27% of all respondents supported a market economy. In Poland, 92% wanted to keep the state welfare system. Contrasting this public opinion, you know, again, democracy, with what's actually going on here. Like, the people don't want this. And so you'd think, okay, why? Why wouldn't they just, like, elect a communist and get out of here? Like, that's that's really hard to do, as we have seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and he, he gets into this and he says, like, yes, some communists have been, you know, elected again back to leadership at the local, even the national level, you can have a few communists in office, but communism or like socialism, running a socialist state is beyond just having a little bit of representation or even having a majority of the government. It's about like taking power of the entire society. And in their situation, while you had a few communists there, capitalists were in control of society. They're control of the means of production, property relations, the media, the police, the whole thing. Yeah. Do you think his argument is that like you just cannot vote your way to communism? Um, I, I, I think that he would probably say yes, but it's not necessarily just that because you could theoretically elect, you know, an entire or a mostly slate of communists and then they could start doing that. But you have to start doing the things, which is like actually seize control of the states, smash the old system, bring in your system or else you're just nibbling at the edges. And if capital's really in control and you don't expropriate them, you don't take away their control of the economy, of the force of the government, of the institutions, if you don't take that out of their hands, they're just going to counter-revolution you immediately. Even if we elected a whole Senate and House of Bernie Sanders's, <laughs> it wouldn't do right. anything. Yeah, because, I mean, you still have the military there. Because you still have, you know, the police state. You still have the intelligence agencies. You still have those private armies from, like, just companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you've got all the defense contractors. You've got all the, the you know, big tech companies who are working with them. You've got all the banks against you that are all of a sudden not lending to the government. They could just shut it down and be like, oh, uh, Amazon's holding your government hostage unless yeah. you pass these pro-business reforms. Bye. It's called a capital strike. The one strike I don't like. <laughs> well, yeah. Or Besides police, police strike. strikes, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, I like this section. I mean, I don't like it, the results, but I thought this was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of talked about how, you know, that's such a sharp decline. It seems to have leveled out a little bit. But he's he's talking about how, you know, it's often uh, these reforms, these free market reforms are sold as like, oh, yeah, it's going to be temporarily hard, but like, you're going to improve, you're going to get more capital. But he's saying, you know, a lot of nations get stuck in that kind of temporary setback stage for centuries. And and his example is Latin America. And I'm like, for fucking real, like, you can't sell that as as oh, this is actually good for you in the long run. Because again, you have to ask, who is it good for? Like, this money isn't going to the people that live there. It's going to multinational corporations. Yeah, because the economy is set up with the rules of the game being do anything you can to make as much profit as you can. And maybe, you know, oh, this is nice little Europe. So, of course, they're going to set up some regulations or something eventually. But it's still not in service to you. Like in our situation, we were just talking about how like, yeah, all right, the American working class has all these benefits and stuff that it gets compared to the global south. But that's like we're still not the point of like of capitalist society we're like our well-being they don't fucking care they, they want we are us not at the center of their government the way we would be in communism where their thing is let's provide for people theirs is let's provide for profit yes that's the key difference in 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 every one of these socialist states that got overthrown that was the center of their of, of their economy of their society was how can we like provide for people and yes it wasn't always efficient we had an entire chapter on that but like that's what they were trying to do yeah but when you take away that core ethos and replace it with profit bad things happen <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and again you know sure in their case in some of these eastern european countries and everything uh things did get better eventually you know but like you said, it doesn't always work that way. And it's not even intended to work that way. Like it works that way if it's convenient for the capitalists, if it gets you, you know, if it gets more of their population going into to work every day without doing rebellions and stuff. But if they don't need to do that, they're not going to because that's not the point. The point is to make profit. So overall, I don't know, this chapter, to me, the big question I was thinking of was like that. That's a Shakespeare quote, right? The one that's like, is it better to have loved and lost? Mm-hmm, than that's Shakespeare. That's all willy. We're kind of in this. We're we're in the never t- never have loved uh, <laughs> section. We've never had a socialist state. Mm-hmm. But it feels to me almost more tragic to have had one in your historical memory, at least, or maybe even in your personal memory if you're older, and then to have that torn away, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're kind of experiencing the other side of that, which is, I, I mean, we were talking to our parents the other day about like kind of their financial issues growing up and, you know, when they were young adults and stuff. And just like how much more accessible it seemed back then, you know, like, wow, you guys like were able to buy a house and like do shit and you, but neither of you went to college and like that was just, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're experiencing the, yeah, have never loved, but also like never had a chance to. <laughs> We're declining from that, I guess. So it's it's getting even worse. And we're sadly like looking back like, oh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, you know, the 80s or whatever in the 90s where you could foreseeably have a family and provide for them. Like that is more and more just impossible to reach for most people. You know, one reason why conditions were so beneficial to regular people to where they could do that is because you did have to keep people 
pleased enough with your system in comparison to the viable alternative that was still around at the time, the Soviet Union. That's what I was thinking about, too. Like, yeah, it it was very clearly, uh, you know, a buy off, which like, sure, I'll fucking take it, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Like it it made the world better by just existing, you know, like we it forced them to to provide us things and. You know, you can see that throughout the 30s through the 80s was all just like, fuck, okay, uh, don't kill us. Here's here's some workers' rights. Okay, don't kill us. Here's some, you know, Medicare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's the only time we get anything, any concessions from a capitalist government is when they're afraid. And now they're just systematically just taking those apart. No fear. Cool. <laughs> anyway, this is also a cheery chapter title, The End of Marxism. Hmm. Big if true. (laughs) Big if true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what do we got here? I mean, this is... I wrote a quick review of Marx. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. A little explanatory section talking about Marxism as a social science, a way to conceptualize the world and better understand the patterns of it through class power, through political economy. And, you know, throwing shade at people who are like, yeah, this is just old shit. It doesn't apply anymore. Which, like, wow, he could have written this yesterday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People are still out there doing this. <laughs> if you want to hit tweet, just hate on Marx. <laughs> yeah, for real. There's still all these different criticisms of it. And it, and it gets into him, you know. I don't know. I thought this was a basic but, like, very accessible understanding of, like, how does Marxism analyze how does it see capitalism for what it truly is yeah i would actually say if you like haven't or don't want to read the communist manifesto i would still suggest you do but if you want to avoid some of like the confusing vocab this chapter might be good for you you know he doesn't use any of the weird terms of like you know proletariats and bourgeoisie and like the terms (laughs) that you have to google you know it's like this is about production people need to survive like very basic shit it's very teachable, or, or I guess you can learn from it very yeah. well. I feel like I could show this to like a middle schooler and they would get no, it. No, they would not. Maybe a high schooler. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> I forgot you teach those. Okay. High schoolers. High yeah, schoolers. This is, this is beyond their cap- most of their capabilities. You'd get a few. I particularly like the paragraph, uh, capitalist theorists present capital as a creative providential force. So, you know, you hear about like, oh, we're, we're creating jobs, we're creating capital, you know, we're, we're the ones making things. You know, in their view, it that is it is the productive force. Uh, but Marxists turn that around and say, like, all right, capital does not make anything; the labor makes the things. Yes, labor created capital. That's how it came to be. Human labor is the true job creator, and what we produce gets stolen by the capitalists and po- made into a big pile, and that's the capital that they're saying creates jobs. Yeah, yeah. Another flip I really appreciated is the next paragraph, you know, tackling the classic trickle-down economic theory. Rich people get richer, but don't worry, because they're going to spend their money in the economy and give you jobs and blah, 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 so we'll all get richer. But really, it's more of a cause and effect in the other direction of because there are rich people, there have to be poor people. Yes. Uh, well, And the rich people got that way by making people poor. By saying, you're going to make this for me, and I'm only going to pay you this. Maybe it's not even like as direct. Like I would add maybe a third class of like ultra poverty too, because then in turn, because you know, like you can still have a middle class in that, I guess. Yeah. So some people, it's 
you're going to work for me. You uh, don't have a choice. You're going to make less than what you're really actually worth here. And I get to pocket that extra money and buy a big house. And why do you agree to do that is because you don't have an alternative, except there, I mean, you kind of do. There is one alternative that's kept publicly displayed in your society. Uh, the people without houses, people living in the streets, uh, the underclass that is kicked around. Oh, what did you think about this on one twenty four? He makes the point point about uh, professional athletes. Oh, I thought this was interesting because yeah, this is I think a common. I, I think this is a fascinating thing because you know a surprisingly strikeable area in the United States at least is sports and people get really mad about it because they're, like, they're paid so much. Why are they striking? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're actually well unionized and everything. But I think he makes a good point i think i agree with him. i think so too because he says uh professional athletes who receive dramatically higher salaries than most people but compared to the enormous wealth they produce for their owners and taking into account the rigors and relative brevity of their careers the injuries sustained the lack of lifelong benefits it can be said that they are exploited at a far higher rate than most workers yeah i mean people out there getting horrible concussions and possibly lifelong ruining their health you know like that's intense, dude. You should get paid a lot for that. And like, that reminds me of the people who go into an art museum and be like, I can do that. It's like, well, you can't. You didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> yeah. This also reminds me, I saw a great sign. It was it was Dallas Morning News did a coverage of uh, the airline strike happening right now. And I think this is just the perfect sign to put on your, your striking signs was, are you mad at American Airlines? We are too. Because... Particularly right now, travel is really shitty and hectic. And like, yeah, there are a lot of, you know, pilots and other people in the airline industry striking. And the public tends to turn on them and say like, well, this is inconvenient for me. Why are they doing this? This is shitty. Like, they're just taking a holiday. But like, if you can flip that around and say like, well, if they're mad at the airline, like you are also mad at the airline because they're the reason they're out there striking. Yeah. And those inconveniences for you as a traveler are also inconvenient for the staff. I mean, these are people who have to take multiple flights a day just for their job and stuff. And like when that stuff gets delayed, their plans, like their life is changed by that too. Like they have to do a different thing. They have to follow a different schedule, almost you know, nine times out of 10, less convenient than what they were planning on. I mean, it sucks for them too. And it's the same thing with any strike of a public facing. Teacher strikes. Yes. Those are spicy. That's what I was actually going to draw the draw the parallel to is people will get out and say, oh you're doing this you're bad because you know you should be focused on the kids my kids can't go to school it's like well, i would love to focus on the kids if i had fucking time and energy and money to do so <laughs> yeah there's someone who could solve this today it's like my boss you know like, yeah the the state or you know in, in different places different things they're like the school district the state whatever they could fix this it's it's not me i'm not setting the policy you know i have to follow it it's it's another instance of like we are on your side it's just we have to realize that. And it, this chapter is all about kind of like cutting through the bullshit that you're fed and seeing whose side are you on. Uh, what's this crazy word? Gemeinschaft. Gemeinschaft. Where the heck is that? <laughs> 124. 124. I just blocked it out. Uh, bloop, 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 bloop. <laughs> skipped right over it. Don't know it. <laughs> I think it's like gestalt. Oh, this. So it's German. It's. 
It looks hella German. It's got to be like the kind of like a Gestalt or, or like a Zeitgeist sort of thing of like a like integration social. As well, it's just social relations between individuals based on close personal and family ties. Community. Okay, so he gave the definition right there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. So he was just okay. saying community. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess because he's talking about Marx that he wants to, you know, say, say I also know some German. Here it is. <laughs> Check this out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I took a semester of German. Uh. But I, I, I did think that was a good little section is that like capitalism is atomizing, is commercializing everything about our community and just... He says, he says, no system in history has been more relentless in battering down ancient and fragile cultures, pulverizing centuries-old practices in a matter of years, devouring the resources of whole regions, and standardizing the varieties of human experience. Ugh, that's extremely true. We all feel that. Like, yeah. wherever you are, you feel that. If you're in a colonized country, you feel it so directly that your country has been cut open and bled, right? But even if you're in the imperial heartland, you see it when every town you visit looks the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even every country, like I was kind of took by taken by that. Like there's, you know, was still McDonald's everywhere I went in Europe. Oh, you heard my great rant about the Louvre. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a fucking mall around it for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, what do you have to blame for that? You have hey, let's set up the world for a profit instead of for what would be desirable for humans, which is some variety and some culture and some community. Okay. What the fuck is chiliastic? Chiliastic. I'm chiliastic It, it sounded kind of chill. I don't know. Um, <laughs> That's like you're excited about chilling. Yeah, I think it meant like cold or like uh, calculating or, you know, that's what I mm. assumed. Let's do another okay. lookup, though. We're not that smart. We're learning some words today, y'all. Oh, millenarian. Okay. What does that mean? Now I have to do another Google. No, millenarian is like the end is coming. Like there's, oh, there's okay, a big change okay. about to happen. Okay, gotcha. Well, anyway, why are we talking about <laughs> chilling, chiliastics? Uh, so here he's kind of defending Marx uh, directly, you know, and saying, well, here, here's some shit that fucking Marx figured out and people don't give him credit for. And so first up is business cycles and the tendency toward recession. He's like, that wasn't a thing. People weren't talking about that before Marx. He says, hey, every once in a while, the capitalists, their machine fucks up because it's designed to. And they have to, you know, they have to throw millions of people out of work. They have to just, you know, do uh, (laughs) what free market economists will call creative destruction. You know, just liquidate the place, ruin people's lives so that they can put profits back on course. Yeah, I mean, the job creators end up being job destroyers. Yeah, yeah. And and they, they like, they plan for it, you know. He's describing this as like the basic mechanism that it's like capitalists aren't really being personally greedy, although he gets into that later. But he's saying like, um, there's a problem that they are required to cut costs and this undercuts the demand for their products because their workers can't buy them. And bam, recession. <laughs> And that was a big deal because they hadn't, like, I guess, codified that recession boom bust cycle, or is it that they hadn't done it so much then yet? No, I mean they had been happening uh, a few okay. times, not as okay. Frequently. So this is another big theory thing, but they <laughs> they seem to happen in greater and greater uh, intensity as global capitalism or uh, the subsequent like 
oh, this is big stuff. This is Giovanni Arrighi. Um, but basically the, the economic cycles as like it went from like the Dutch to the British to us in terms of world domination, uh, the intensity of, of global recessions, setbacks and stuff have, have increased basically. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense because before you're working with a more local economy where like if you dropped, you dropped some and that sucked. But like as you get a global economy, like there's more money in the pot. Yes. Yeah. That, there, that was my little summary. <laughs> <laughs> that's a yeah. That's a better way to put it. If you want to read like 500 pages on it, you can read Arigi. I'm I'm trying to work <laughs> I on don't, it. It's I'm complicated. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Next, capital concentration. I mean, saying like yeah, he predicted all these mergers as capitalism just consolidates more and more. My note was hold my beer because <laughs> fuck, we're doing that for sure. Oh yeah, and it was again at a time before this was really happening. I mean, you saw like very small instances of it that he managed to predict when no one else did. Uh, next, you had the growth of the proletariat. More and more people getting thrown down into the proletariat class from from a more advantaged position. I I thought this tied in well to our little article about remote work being surveilled and stuff. It, it's an instance of more people realizing, damn, I'm really in the working class now. I'm getting watched like an Amazon worker, you know? Yeah, yeah, good point. Revolution also predicted that. <laughs> and this is the one where he's like, okay, well. Mm. It didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> At least not the way he thought it would. And, and well, yeah, because he thought that this was going to happen in the most developed portions of capitalism. So he thought this was happening in Germany, mainly, or, or, in, or in these places where capitalism was furthest along, where it had strengthens its position versus where it actually happens, where it's most mostly in imperialism's weakest links in Russia and China and Cuba and Vietnam. The most oppressed people are the ones that rise up first. Yeah. And the places where the empire is farthest flung, you know? So that one's more of like a right, but not right. sort of thing. Yeah. Right idea, wrong application. I, I thought this bit was interesting talking about the census bureau. So he gives us a stat about you know, income inequality being like 14,000 to one in terms of like between the richest and highest or richest and poorest people. Right. But the footnote talks about how the Census Bureau didn't give his research assistant any more detail because supposedly their computer can't handle like <laughs> higher amounts, which like what the fuck kind of abacus are you using? <laughs> yeah, they still have like the punch card computers. <laughs> yeah. Like what is going on? But it doesn't make sense because they have also raised the upper limit so, like, they have to know on some level, but they also said it was due to confidentiality because, like, otherwise you could figure out probably, like, where those rich people are, which, like, mm, I'd love to know that information. Yeah, we should. We should, <laughs> we we should, should. figure that out. Oh, Dave and Dan, if you have any leads, let us know. <laughs> but, yeah, basically because of the way their numbers are set up, their system, you can lump in, like, upper middle class people who make, like, 70000 a year and categorize them as the richest, which, like, that is not the richest guys that's that's a that's a nice amount to make but it's not the richest All right. it's 132,000 now okay so that is a that's a good chunk of change yeah i wouldn't sneeze um, at that yeah yeah no <laughs> i mean this this is a rich person but like not like a corporate titan <laughs> it's not ceo money yeah that's what we mean oh i thought this note was interesting too that you know contract labor is increasing and like man it's so fucking has now huh mm -hmm. that took <laughs> everyone's off. a freelancer that took off for sure mm-hmm 
And with that comes a convenient way to say, hey, I don't have to like get you insurance or anything because nope. this is just, that's you, man. That's you working for yourself. You can't really yourself. do a union. can't no. do any of that. You're your own. You are a boss, actually. You're a boss. And <laughs> Congratulations. You're a boss. You're on our side now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take all your money, though. <laughs> all right. Next, a holistic science. Dude, I like this section. Uh, he's talking about Marxism as like a way to kind of peek behind the curtain. Like it's, um, it's re- relevatory. It, it, it makes sense of the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's a systemic way to look at things like, I don't know, not to be woo woo about it, but it is like, it is a new way to view the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're putting on the glasses from they live and seeing like, oh, actually this is what's what reality is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you have to strip away because, you know, we are presented with a capitalist ideology if you live in a capitalist country. And so you're raised with those values, you're raised with these myths that we try to break down on this show. But when you start reading and understanding Marxism and this kind of stuff, you're able to start stripping away those pieces and like really look at them like we've been doing this book of like, all right, are they job creators? Are they, you know, for democracy? Are they for whatever? Like you can start actually analyzing that. Yeah. And he makes explicit what we kind of mentioned before is he says, Marx realized that what capitalism claims to be and what it actually is are two different things. The ultimate purpose of work is not to perform services for consumers or sustain life and society, but to make more and more money for the investor, irrespective of the human and environmental costs. And another thing he kind of focuses on in this chapter is the interrelated interconnectedness of everything in capitalism in our society overall. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he he brings in race kind of finally. He hadn't done that too much throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. He has a really good example of racism as you can have like a kind of uninformed understanding of it at first. It is like, oh, well, it's just like people having a set of bad attitudes. That is the base level understanding of it. That's kind of what we're taught what racism is. But when he like applies, he uses the term rational and he explains like, I don't mean like it's cool to be racist. I mean, in a capitalist system, it makes sense to incite race tensions. Yeah, that's what yeah, he's saying um, that it is a it's not an irrational output of a basically rational and benign system like, hey, you know, everything's set up, it works well. Uh, but we do have like a few weirdos who are like racists and, you know, that's bad. But like, <laughs> few bad apples, right? But actually, it is a rational output of a basically irrational, unjust system. Your system sucks, and it makes sense that it's going to not just produce racists, but like... Encourage. Yeah, encourage racists and like set up systems that are systemically racist. Like slavery and the police. Yeah. So when he's saying, you're right, when he's saying rational, it's not like good. He's saying like, it makes sense given this system. And so he is you know talking about those institutions he says like marxism allows you to not view them as like part of the natural landscape that they've always been there always will be there and also as not neutral you know this is uh obvious to a lot of people in in some way but marxism gives you like the understanding like these people are working for a class the class that funds them yeah yeah i mean think about any sort of scientific study, you like kind of always have to check who funded that because wowza bowza, you can find a conflicting study pretty easily if you know that. <laughs> yep. And all these, uh, all the budgets of these institutions are funded by the capitalist class. 
you know, uh, all the politicians are, are, you know, how do they, because they do, they, they draw a salary. Congress draws a salary. They draw us, you know, a, what are, what are they paid now? Do you know? No. Let's see. US <laughs> no, I don't want to get mad. Congress. I know they don't annual. fucking work most of the year. <laughs> all right. Uh, per annum, 174,000. So they are. Wow. You know, paid pretty well. That's Congress. And then Senator. Senator Sally, 193000 for a Damn. senator. All right, so they're getting paid. Pretty well. But so many times they waltz into their, you know, a millionaire probably, and waltz out with many millions more. They, they give them metal detectors, and in D.C. there's a bunch of just like secret treasure. That's yeah, the one they, they don't go, tell you. They go treasure hunting. <laughs> I mean, they have the time. They don't have to be at work very often. but For real. Yeah, they, they work for the people who get them those extra millions. They don't work for you. you know. And Marxism shows you that these connections and stuff aren't conspiracies. They're just class interests. Institutions are set up this way, and, and overall... Like you were saying earlier, we have myths that we're told versus what Marxism kind of peels back and shows you is the case. So like we have myths that, oh, hey, uh, we have interdependency uh, between us and other nations. We don't have imperialism. Or Marxism okay. actually, you know, it's, it's just imperialism, you know. Uh, <laughs> we have common values as a society. There's no class domination. But Marxism, actually, it's just about class domination. That's all it is. Uh, we have pluralism, you know, we have uh, lots of different uh, political actors and stuff. And Marxism's like, actually, it's um, it's a it's a Byzantine it's bureaucracy. The same guy. <laughs> yeah, it's just set up to be confusing, <laughs> to be bad, you know, and not work for you. Or uh, we have, you know, interest. I think this is interesting. We are told that, you know, we do civic education. We teach citizenship, this sort of thing. But other countries, you know, they do propaganda. <laughs> and Marxism is like, why, you know, why is that a, why is that a, you know, why, why, why are they doing propaganda? You are doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. And not even well, like, I don't think I could pass a citizenship test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, we mostly focus on the part about loving your country. That's, that's the main, yeah. that's, the, that's the important thing. Yeah. Again, there was a question on Jeopardy. There's a whole section on the Electoral College, and I bombed it. Every single one of them. I was like, oh, fucking no. Yeah, no, they're less interested in that because, like, who cares <laughs> if you want to go vote or not? <laughs> Learning to ask why. Why are we asking why? Well, I think he has a pretty good example of the world seeming confusing and random if you don't understand the relationships between things. Devoid of a framework that explains why things happen, we're left to see the world as do mainstream media pundits, as a flow of events, a scatter of particular developments and personalities unrelated to a larger set of social relations. It's just a sea of random stuff, right, if you don't understand the connections. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely felt this way before. Like, you know, you ever feel like the news just comes too fast and you're just like... Wow, we just had, you know, Uvalde. Wow, we just had Roe. Okay, now we're having fucking floods in Pakistan. Like, it just feels like overwhelming. And you can just say, like, it sure is crazy out there. Or you could step back and be like, oh, I think, like, some of these things are connected. Yeah, that and that's, again, that's one of the powers of Marxism is it's explanatory in this way. And it gives the good example of the child labor story in Indonesia. And how, oh, it's a shocking story. The mainstream media, these, you know, the corporate media or whatever would, would carry just the story that says, damn, there was child labor in Indonesia and multinational corporations are using it. 
Then, if you were to go and analyze it further and say, uh, hey, this was backed up by Indonesia's military government, you might see fewer of those media outlets publish <laughs> that. And then, if you say, oh, you know, I mean, also the U.S. has been financing and advising and training this military for 30 <laughs> years, which is true, <laughs> you're going to get fewer outlets that produce that. Then if you go, hey, this isn't just Indonesia, if you zoom out and say, whoa, this is, it's just, it's all, it's all class. It's all like us trying to make the world safe for the free market, for profit, for capitalism. When you start saying that. Then you're crazy. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're conspiratorial, you know, nut and only the diehard Marxist journals are going to publish that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. And, and, you know, usually you can get people to that first or second level of like, yeah, this is weird, right? But like, it takes a lot to then connect it to the theory, which is, you know, why sometimes we're like, well, maybe you don't have to bring up the theory. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can leave out the theory. You don't want to be like, he talks about the, the ones the the Marxist theorists who have, you know, kind of retreated into abstract weirdo stuff. He had the quote about what was it the, uh, how many Marxists can dance on the head of a surplus value? I love that. <laughs> oh. The one, one quote that I liked in this that kind of ties it all together. Uh, he says, Marxism offers the kind of subversive truths that cause fear and trembling among the high and mighty. Those who live atop a mountain of lies. Very good. I'm like, yes, I do want to make them afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> okay. Last chapter. Anything but class avoiding the C word. Let's do it. Cunts. <laughs> this was another chapter that i really liked because it's it's trying to dispel some of the some of the myths that we are taught about class and it also is calling out people who try to avoid it yeah yeah there is a big discomfort in particularly this country around talking about money and especially class like you're supposed to pretend it doesn't exist i think though i my response to this was like uh, this was hard for me to tell because I am so fucking left. But like, I feel like a lot of people are seeing it a little more clearly now. Maybe they don't have the word class, but they know stuff is rigged, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like they know that like rich people are in charge. Right. I think that that's the case for lots of people. I would say it's it's a more prevalent view, it seems like, with younger or with more working class people, too. Yeah, I think um, I just hang out with too many youths. The higher up you go in terms of income, even if they're working still for a wage, the more class denialism I think you will see. Yeah, or even like defense of that class of like, well, you know, they still donate or whatever. <laughs> right, yeah, and you have experience with that too. Parenti kind of gets into it here talking about, you know, how people try to avoid class, how the ruling class basically uh, hates, you know, talking about, class as an existence and, and kind of calls it, you know, conspiratorial if you start talking about, you know, a ruling class controlling things. Yeah. I mean, when you start talking about it, you do sound kind of crazy. You're like, oh, you know, it, it may, we always have to give the, we give the, what I call the mustache twirling addendum of like, yeah, they're not doing this on purpose. They're not like, whoa, ha, ha, I'm taking over the world. It's just what they do. Because otherwise you do sound like a crazy person being like, yeah, capitalists are just fucking evil and taking over everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does seem like that. I mean, sometimes they do actual conspiracies, but they don't have to most of the time. Yeah, it's all sanctioned. He kind of talks about here. They also try to avoid 
the term working class. They don't really want us to be in solidarity with each other. Instead, they kind of settle on, hey, what about the middle class? Ugh, the squishiest term around. What does it do? I mean, it essentially does the kind of class collaboration thing by skipping a step and just saying, no, 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 no. Hey, the classes don't need to collaborate. There just aren't that many classes. There's the middle class. Everyone's on the same team. He talks about how it applies kind of a, a virtuous label to these people of like, oh, you, you work hard. And so like you deserve to be here. And, you know, conversely, keep working hard or you'll end up in the lower class. <laughs> uh, then he gets into this little, I, I love his little credo response section. Yeah, yeah. Just some takedowns. Yeah. He just kind of smacks some bad responses around. It's like someone says, uh, no, there's no real class divisions in society. Like, it's fine. And he's just like, are you, are you, are you fucking serious, dude? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen this wealth inequality? It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> are you not looking around? Like, what? what's the deal? So he's just like, no, that's stupid. Okay. Next, uh, social institutions. They're autonomous. They're fair. Don't be a conspiratorial person. Everything's fine. Uh, no. Pretty much all of our institutions are controlled by money. So uh, that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, these, the, the, the people who control our institutions, the people who control the government, uh, you know, elected officials, uh, appointed officials, business titans. IMF. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These guys are all like the same CEOs wearing different masks. Like it's the same circle of people. It's the same class of people. All right. Next dummy. Sure. Well, you know. The differences between rich and poor people, I mean, you know, if, you, if you're naturally smart, you're just going to be rich, you know? That's that's just some people are rich, some people are poor. Yeah, that that there's an inherent, you know, difference in skills or mindset. And this changes every once in a while, you know? First they say, oh, it's IQ, and then everyone's like, well, that's very racist, and they're like, okay. okay. Uh, then it's mindset, you know? Some people have a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Or it's just, you know, everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. They always come up with some, some different way of saying this is justified. It's the old concept of the natural order, right? Of the, the mandate of heaven, of the great chain of being. Things are there for a reason. Don't question it, bud. And Parenti's like, uh, sorry, the rich, they really do not seem to be naturally superior. <laughs> There's some real dumbasses that are rich. Yeah, and he's like, the game is rigged in their favor, so of course they're winning. They're ruining our planet. They are just fucking everyone over for their own benefit. Like, these guys seem like entitled assholes, not naturally superior people. Because they do, they apply like a moral goodness to these yeah. people often. Mm -hmm. Like, then why are they doing such fucking evil things? <laughs> why don't they end poverty? Yeah, they're so nice. They have the money for it. Why don't they put everyone in houses? That doesn't even require you to build houses you just put them in there uh you know why why don't they feed everyone why you know and these things are you know because they're so virtuous and they're so perfect and everything like this they should be you know mother Teresa out here like fixing everything but they're not because that's not what they're there for again it goes back to the cause what is their actual cause and their actual cause is piling up more money and they can't pile up more money if no one's willing to go work for them because they have it too comfortable abc theorists Going back to basics here. All right. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're in <laughs> kindergarten now. He's going to start dissing on kindergarten teachers here. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is, is really standing for anything but class. 
Yeah, and so these are uh, Marxists or just liberals or what have you who will <laughs> will do all sorts of loops to avoid talking about class. He gives the the example of this Stanley Aronowitz guy who's like, when I hear the word class, I just yawn. Good for you. You sound like you're rich. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the footnote, the, the half page footnote on the next one. It's huge. <laughs> he gives a whole half page to just do a sick burn. <laughs> yeah, because this guy, his friend, this physicist, Alan Sokal, fools his way onto Aronowitz's academic journal, who Parenti calls out, the just journal saying whose articles specialized in quote bloated verbiage, pedantic pretensions, <laughs> and academic one upmanship. Oh my god. So his his friend just like wrote a fake article for it and just used a bunch of confusing words and got in. Yeah. And then he like told them about it afterward. He's like, Hey, my article doesn't mean anything. That's fucking postmodernism. That's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so Love it. He's basically saying these guys don't have anything behind them. And speaking of postmodernism, ah, that's kind of his page. next target. Yeah. Yes, I love that. What do you think about this? Okay, I talked about this in part one too, but I, I like this idea of, from my understanding, postmodernism being like a rejection of rationality and like you know, you know, the rules no longer apply, that kind of thing, and like ideologies don't have re relevance. I think if you want to take it out of like art school talk or theory talk, you can kind of think about almost nihilism or like kind of the apathetic way to be cool in like the 80s and 90s was like, well, I'm independent or like, I don't, you know, I don't even care. And yeah. Like, or like, like nothing matters almost or kind of nothing like has explanations. Isn't it kind of like anti-narrative too? It's like, Yes. Okay. Which is, I mean, it, we were just talking about the explanatory like capabilities of Marxism. <laughs> we like narratives. <laughs> it's the opposite of that, right? It's like saying, it is. no, it's you saying can't do that. It's all random. It's all uncontrollable. Like, let's just make shit because we're here. Like that yeah. kind of stuff. Okay. That's my interpretation. If I'm way off, actually, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I don't want someone to explain postmodernism to me. I already went to art school. <laughs> Please don't put me back. Um, but that's my understanding is like, it is a rejection of what I would call traditional narratives, which is, you know, someone who writes books, not my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah. And he, he kind of frames this, you know, okay, what does this mean for us? And he says it kind of resembles the same old anti-class theories of both the right and the left of like, Hey, you know, there isn't a connection. There's no way to explain this. You can't use class to say, Oh, Hey, here's why the world is the way it is like that is, you know, and, and in doing that, it's kind of trying to deny a, a way of understanding the world and then a way of mobilizing ourselves, you know, to free ourselves from those conditions. Yeah, yeah. And and even, I mean, the other note here about like humanistic Marxists, I mean, I think that's a common complaint against Marxism is like, oh, it's just economics. It doesn't take into account human factors. When we've talked about this, Marxist like was a fucking very humanistic thinker. Like he studied history. He studied, like, was it like social sciences? Like he fucking knew what he was doing. <laughs> Yeah, and he came from a tradition of philosophy, and that's why here he's actually kind of calling out what Marxists will sometimes do, and which I've heard before and, and read on and initially thought like, oh, I guess that kind of makes sense. People are saying it, is that there's kind of a good early Marx and then a bad later Marx. Like, so early Marx is good, nice humanist, and then later Marx is like mean, grumpy economist. Kind of what Parenti argues is that he's more like just kind of growing as a person and a theorist. So he starts from a tradition of uh, Hegelianism. Yeah, which that was all philosophy, very little economics. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that's that's where he initially kind of draws his inspiration. I mean, he's just doing philosophy initially mm-hmm. before he gets kind of sucked into analyzing and explaining capitalism, you know, and that becomes his life project. But Parenti does a good job of saying like you can still see in late Marx like those philosophical influences. Like it's not that that, that he just abandons that, but it just kind of like evolves to to be not doing philosophy for philosophy's sake. But for trying to explain the economy and, and sometimes using philosophy as a way of, of enlightening that. So he contrasts him to Gramsci? Gramsci? How do you say his name? I've heard it said Gramsci or Gramsci, either way. <laughs> we have gotten requests to, to read this guy. So uh, now I'm, I don't know. Should, should we read this guy? Let's, yeah, no, let's this see. guy's good. Uh, okay. His characterization seems rude. That's why I ask. I, I think he's, he's knocking down the rude characterization of it. Okay, okay, okay. Because he says... Uh, yeah, that Gramsci's like, oh, he's not, you know, he's he's like a different type of Marxist, like a good Marxist. The Marxist who's safe to bring home to mother is the quote, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm good at charming parents. You can bring me home to mother. <laughs> the reason he's saying that is because people are basically trying to whitewash Gramsci and saying like, oh, he's more humanistic. Uh, he's less economistic. He's more focused on culture, all this. But what? Parenti is right to point out is that Gramsci was a Marxist-Leninist. That he was a member of the Italian Communist Party. He like was in involved in that directly. Didn't see class and culture as like separate things, but like his big thing is is cultural hegemony. Yes, I've heard of that. And he basically says like the capitalist state will use culture as a tool of domination. It will shape what it sees, what it dictates is quote unquote common sense uh, as like the kind of governing everyone understands. And that's what we've been talking about here. All these mm-hmm. myths, all the myths and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So like, how could you read that and view it as not Marxist? That's, in, that's very Marxist to me. Yeah, it is. And, and that's because they haven't read it. I mean, like, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> they read the back of the book. Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of people, yeah, I think that for some people, they've read it and say, well, this focuses more on culture, so that's what I want to do, um, and just kind of like poo-poo the class part. But for actual Gramsci, it was, these these were inherently linked, like culture yeah, was... Yeah, inseparable. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate his, his setting the record straight, because like he says, Gramsci would be really surprised uh, <laughs> at this characterization of him. Like, hey, what the fuck? That that was not the point. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to make me, like, as a ghost in 100 years, like, you missed the point. Read oh, my book yeah. again. You fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like this next part where he kind of talks about, uh, on page 148, he's talking about, like, how class can be misapplied and like so you start getting into these micro classes of like upper middle and lower middle professional and and all that shit yeah 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 like uh blue collar and we get questions about this yeah yeah and it's like oh is this type of person specifically you know oh they make this much income like are they working class all these things and he's like this you know class should not just be kind of a weak weird uh fluctuating descriptor of like your income level or the type of work you do it's do you make things or do you have things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's defending this because people will say, oh, this isn't nuanced enough, whatever. But like he's saying the reason for that is because it tells you like, are you working for the capitalist class or are you working for the people who are exploited by them? There is an us versus them nature to capitalism that 
this microclass thing tries to paper over, tries to disguise. So is it that like, you know, acknowledging that professional classes maybe or wet collar workers, whatever the fuck you want to call them, they live better than other employees, you know, than like maybe service industry people or people who are just like really struggling paycheck to paycheck kind of stuff, but they're still in the same class. And, and they're really trying to obfuscate that by applying these micro labels. Yes. Yeah. They're still working class. And I mean, there's, there's so many ways to cut it. Like if you want to get theoretical with it or, or just want to apply more nuance, it's there. The underlying thing is who's making profit for whom and who's getting that profit, right? That, that'll tell you, am I getting profit off of other people or am I, or someone getting profit off of me? Am I exploiting or getting exploited? That's the big division. But then if you want to zoom out, you can say, okay, well, you know, yeah, the, the professional workers are like the managers, right? They're kind of in between a little bit because they're helping the bosses, you know, exploit the workers, but they themselves are getting exploited. You can go global and say, well, you know, we're getting kind of paid off, kind of bribed by the spoils of empire. Uh, so we're kind of exploiting, you know, the colonized countries, but we're also being exploited by our bosses. So there's like, you know, there is nuance there. There is for sure. And, and again, like that underclass both globally and on a micro level is used to threaten you too of like, okay, you know, you can't, you can't fuck up here, you know, even though, because like most professionals and managers in that kind of class or not class, but you know, micro class is mental work. There is the threat of, well, we could fire you and you have to go do physical work. Right. Yeah. It's a threat. It's also kind of a shame thing too sometimes. Like it's like, oh, why are you complaining? You know, you have it way better than whoever. Mm hmm. But I think the important thing to note, the the reason why he's saying, like, it's good to be able to, using Marxism, divide it up into just two groups is because everybody in that whole cycle of things, except for the capitalist class, everybody would be better off if we got rid of the capitalist class. Right? <laughs> if we freed ourselves from that. entirely true. Then I'm not exploiting the global south anymore, so that's good for them. And I'm not getting exploited for my boss, so that's good for me. Send me those addresses, Dave and Dan. I'm waiting. You know our email. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, a good point he made here. All right. Everyday class struggle. That's like our motto. Every day I'm struggling. No, I mean like the or stinger. Uh, I mean, you don't say it anymore because I record it for the social media thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> class struggle uh, is always in session. Mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> so he starts out criticizing the ABC theorists, these guys. Because they'll be like, hey, there's like not going to be a workers revolution anytime soon. Why the fuck are we still talking about class analysis, Marxism and everything if there's not going to be a revolution tomorrow? Throw out Marxism. And he's like, "Uh, what are you talking about? Like just because, you know, there's not like an imminent massive change going to happen right immediately. You're not just going to throw it out. Like right if you were just like, hey, we're not going to do feminism tomorrow or civil rights tomorrow <laughs> are we just going to throw those out like, we don't need that that's a great point yeah why why stop working towards it entirely yeah he's saying like you're just going to give up dude like what and and he, and he says like the class war is not necessarily going to be the everyday struggle of it is not going to be people throwing up barricades and and you know shooting at people doing real street <laughs> violence and stuff it's it's going to start out and it's currently taking place uh, with, he says, anti-labor laws, police repression, union busting, all this stuff, it, uh, dishonest clocking of time, like wage theft, that's huge, 
capital is waging a class war on us and we're, you know, fighting back. We're doing union organizing. We're doing strikes, doing boycotts, doing demonstrations. You know, the class war is being fought. We're losing, but it is being fought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, that whole paragraph of, of what they're doing to crush workers, like extremely familiar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the next section I wanted to see what you thought of uh, about uh, identity groups. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think this very much lines up with how we see things of it's great to fight for those issues, but you also should realize how they are connected and show up for each other. Right. I mean, he's talking about solidarity here. Yes. Yeah. I think he's saying like, it's only, you know, uh, identity uh, groups and everything are only like weakening the struggle when they are explicitly trying to downplay class interests. Like if you understand that identity groups that are anti-capitalist, you know, if, if they understand, Hey, this is, you know, these struggles are connected. Like he said, with solidarity, uh, then that's good. He says the forces that impose class injustice and economic exploitation are the same ones that propagate racism, sexism, militarism, ecological devastation, homophobia, xenophobia, and the like. And, and he goes on to say like people may not, ever develop that class consciousness, but they're still affected by these things. Yeah. And when they fight back against the things that are oppressing them, they're fighting back against the same, you know, again, it's, it's the same guy just wearing a different hat. Like, <laughs> it's the dark side version of the, the thing where people are blindfolded and feeling the elephant sort of thing. And they're, and they're like, Oh, it feels like a tree. Oh, oh yeah, that's like, right. That's right. It's, it's all capitalism. We're just experiencing different parts of it. <laughs> and he says, you know, class analysis doesn't really deny identity issues, but sees how they are linked together and how we're all affected by capitalism. Okay. I like this bit. Wealth is an addiction. What'd yeah. you think about that? I thought this was interesting because we're, I think I'm too easy on this and saying like, oh, it's not about how one individual reacts really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's kind of saying like, it is corrupting to people and it does like addict them to its accumulation. Yeah, I, I think... This was interesting because it, this, you know, obviously reminds me of the super wealthy, you know, the Elon Musks, the Bezoses. You hear often of, you know, they have so much money they could never possibly spend it, which is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a full-time job is spending that money. It's several lifetimes of job is spending that money. But he argues that like at a certain point, it seems like maybe they're not trying to buy things, but like immortality in the sense of like they're they're going to be so fucking famous and inflate their ego so much that they are now they're in the cultural consciousness. They're building pyramids, basically, right? For sure, for sure. And like, it's scary. Like they've moved beyond the dragon sitting on top of a pile of gold. Now it's like they're, they're trying to become a god. <laughs> yeah. He kind of says that capitalism kind of mirrors this in that it is self-devouring you know in the name of maximizing power and profits it has like no end to itself it will take down its own system i don't know it's it's like a cancer you know it's just going to continue to grow until it destroys the host speaking of destroying the host <laughs> yeah. we've got a eco apocalypse a class act now, this one was fun to read, you know, definitely didn't send me spiraling. But I mean, it talks about how capitalism is inherently a system of production that exploits not only people, but the environment. It, it views 
everything as resources, not as Earth. It views everything as put input A to make uh, output B, you know? Uh, he had that lovely Engels quote to that effect, you know, talking about how we are a part of nature, right? We belong to it. We exist in its midst. Meanwhile, like you said, capitalism's just out there converting life into death. And I mean, that's impressive that Engels had that view in, you know, 1876. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he's not getting all the way out to environmentalism or have you, but still like kind of keep in mind or try to gr- ground yourself and say like, like you were saying earlier with these guys trying to become gods, like we, we can't do that. Like we're creatures. <laughs> there have to be consequences for this. And boy, howdy, are there? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. He gets into some horrifying numbers here. I mean, I don't even, I mean, this is a 96, so I bet it's way worse now. It's probably worse. The only thing that's like not worse is the ozone layer because. For some reason that one got better. Yeah. Well, they fixed it. I mean, they stopped doing the CFCs and everything. Mm, So they just, you know, actually legislated that one. Can you imagine? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The numbers overall probably have only gotten worse besides that one exception. Uh, I like that his comment on Nixon's quote on Environment Day. What a strange creature is man that he fouls his own nest. Very good. <laughs> Very good impression. Thank you. Uh, but I mean, it, it gets the idea of, you know, individual responsibility, putting it all on us. Like, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you need to stop using plastic bags. You need to do this. You need to do that on the individual level. And I mean, like, do it. For sure, do it. But like it's he says it's it's of a social magnitude like this is a social a society wide a systemic wide problem that if you're trying to solve individually it's not going to work. Stark reality of the situation is that like many people are reconsidering having kids or the number of kids they want because of climate collapse. Yeah. And like meanwhile you don't see any CEOs tightening their belts. They are kind of not worried about it. And I thought that was interesting, too. He gets into that next is, why is the ruling class, why do they not care about the environment? He basically says, well, it's not going to affect them immediately. Like they're, They have more resources to wall themselves off while we, you know, starve in famines or get mutated by toxic waste or get drowned in a flood or literally burn like. I mean, we just had, we've had like two weeks of thunderstorms in Dallas, which is very unusual. You know, Kyle came home from driving yesterday. He's like, I've never seen rain like that. Like he had to stop twice to get like tree limbs out of the way so he could get home. And I'm like, dude, this is the new normal. (laughs) Yeah. I think that they were saying it's maybe the wettest August that we had. And that was like just Mm -hmm. in that one short span because we didn't have rain the whole time before that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, I'm very... I mean, honestly, freaked out like that. That is what life is going to be and continue to get worse unless, I mean, something crazy happens. (laughs) Yeah, no, no. And something crazy won't happen uh, unless we, you know, get rid of the bad guy who's doing it, which is the capitalist class. Like without that class being stopped, without them no longer being in control, this is where they're going to continue to march us. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting. He kind of adds some more to you know, why the ruling class doesn't care about the environment saying basically they're living in the here or now they're, they're, they're only focused on immediate gain, right. Versus long-term losses for the public and, and and long run destruction. They don't care about that, but I don't know. I would say 
to go back to what you're kind of to tie that back is, is that they are, they seem increasingly like they are just planning on leaving mm-hmm. or bunkering or going to space or they're, they're going to be, they think they're going to be They'll find a way out. I think they will. They'll find a way to cover their asses and their kids' asses and that's it. I think our culture, broadly speaking, to, to generalize, has like a problem with accepting death. Yeah, for sure. But I think that the ruling class almost seems in denial of the fact that they will one day die. I mean, yeah, we just talked about the the buying immortality thing. Like they don't, con- they consider themselves above that, it feels like. They consider their ability, I mean, they buy into the myth of like, I am smarter than everyone else. Yeah. They've internalized that and they think that they're going to ascend somehow. And so I, I do think that when they're looking at the devastation of their plan or whatever, they're like, this is but fine. But not me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'll make it out or I'll tunnel in and I'll protect my own little group and mm-hmm. that'll be fine. It won't happen to me. Talking about the cost of ecology, every dollar a company spends on environmental productions is just it's one dollar less it can spend on earnings, and and that's why you see from these companies so many half-ass kind of efforts of you know they're willing to you know recognize an environmental issue and maybe like post about it or just do something really <laughs> toothless, but they're not actually going to like change their ways. Yeah, no, that cuts into their profits, and again, that's the main thing. This whole system, it, it's repeated because it bears repeating is. This whole system is geared toward profit. It's not geared toward the environment. And it's not geared to you living a good life. It does not care. That doesn't factor into the calculations one bit. Not at all. And let, except for PR. And even then, it's like, what is the bare minimum we could do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want a system that genuinely is trying to work for your needs, you got to jump on board with the communists, with the socialists, or with the anarchists. Again, the the blaming of the individual or even the culture, the talk about the car culture, saying, you know, America is set up to be a car country. And, you know, you can blame that on like individual responsibility, but like you don't have a choice here. Yeah. Like, God, I live in Dallas. There's no fucking way. Like, no, no. <laughs> nothing is walkable. It's bi- cities are built for cars. The spaces in between are built for cars. Everything is car dependent. You know, you, you and why is that? Again, because of profits, because they set it <laughs> because up. Because the that car way. companies. Like, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I don't know. The ending to me felt a little bit abrupt, but in a way, this is like a perfect ending because, you know, it's such a prevalent crisis. But the conclusion of, you know, environmentalism kind of just requires communism. It requires a form of planned production. Like you can't have this, you know, what Marx calls the anarchy production. You can't have that when you're actually trying to like plan for your future. He says it's profoundly subversive of capitalism. Like, because you're right. What are you going to do? You know, how are these different competing firms somehow going to coordinate to save the planet? They're not. They're not because they know every one of them is trying to undercut the other one. And that means, well, fuck, you know, what goes out the window first. <laughs> Wages and the environment. <laughs> and geopolitically, it works the same, too, because you'll still have this, you know, the, the right wing and whatever. They'll say, well, we don't want to do environmental actions and stuff legislation because what if china doesn't do it what if india doesn't do it i mean while pakistan's underwater (laughs) yeah and it's in the reason that they they seem to have the same stance as the uh as the ceos and and the businesses and everything is because they're (laughs) the same people that government works Uh, for them to change it you've got to get rid of the capitalist class being in charge i mean they've they've got to be 
dispossessed of what they've got. And we've got to put the people in charge and, and coordinate. I mean, a massive scale reorganization of everything. <laughs> if it sounds overwhelming, it's because it is. But I mean, you can't, again, you can't just get rid of, you know, the the political powers like mm-hmm. you can vote in as many communists as, as you want but they're going to come to blows with those those corporations at one point or another yeah i kind of agree with you it, it does kind of feel like a rushed ending but i do like his parallel of hey in a lot of ways this is the the big front of this of the class conflict now i think so i i truly i think i said this last episode was that's my prediction i think climate collapse is going to if if that's I think that's our best chance towards revolution. Because it unifies everybody. Like we're Except for those few rich people in their bunkers. Yeah. And and there's there's no clear way to put it. Like we literally all will suffer the same fate. I guess different horrors will be visited upon us in different locations, <laughs> but it's all gonna for suck. Sure. And only the wealthy will be able to somewhat slash completely escape it. But I definitely liked his last lines. We need an informed and mobilized citizenry. I like that it's not just a platitude of like informed because yes, okay, in, getting informed is great, <laughs> but you also you know need to be out there, need to be doing things. Uh, he says the people are our best hope, and the struggle continues throughout history. I love that. For me, this is a five star. Five star, ten out of ten. Would read again. I did read again. I read this twice. For yeah, the- I've read it twice now too. <laughs> <laughs> and it's short. I love that. It's like easy yeah. to read. And I'm not a fast reader, so dope book. Totally good. Very dope. Would recommend uh, for your already left friends, probably. Um, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, next week, we're going to be a little chilly-astic. Uh, <laughs> but in the stupid definition that we gave, not the real one, we're going to be chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we're just going to shoot the shit next week. Uh, gives us a chance to have time to research from future episodes and y'all seem to like them. So yeah. Shooting the shit volume three coming your way. Nice. Do they? That's that. Those are like popular episodes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I haven't checked like the numbers, but we've gotten good feedback on them in like comments and stuff. Ah, the vibes are good. Okay, cool. The vibes are good. (laughs) Everything is vibes now. All vibes based. All right. Vibes based economy. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're working toward guys. If you want to, you know, overthrow the evils of capitalism you got to replace it with a vibes-based economy. Okay, that is true, though. The intent thing was you put the people at the center of your goal. That's pretty vibe. That's a vibe. Yeah, that's the... <laughs> it's it's giving people at the center vibes. Caring for the people vibes. Love it. <laughs> All right. Talk to y'all next week. See ya. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts. Or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to 
local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes. So check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.